G'day and welcome to Talking Finance, the Constant Investors Weekly Podcast Radio Show. Now look, the banks are in trouble, not because of the levy, or even because of the regulators' demand that they hold more capital. It's really because of disruption. Now, a few weeks ago, Alex Pollock of Loftus Capital, on his blog on our website, talked about something called the Revised Payments Service Directive in the UK and Europe, which is forcing banks there to open up their platforms to non-bank competitors. In Australia, there's a parliamentary inquiry on the subject, and given the fact that the government has whacked them with a new tax, as well as legislation to do something about their bad behaviour, you wouldn't be betting that it won't happen here as well. Just search RPSD2 on our website and you'll find Alex's blog post, but I thought it was worth getting him on to follow up. Mind you, non-banks piggybacking on the bank's platforms is one thing, but there's also a whole new breed of licensed banks about to come at them too. So I'll be speaking to one of those about what they're planning, as well as Tom Elliott, on how to take advantage of the new takeovers boom, and property expert Ben Kingsley on what he reckons is the craziness of using negative gearing as an investment strategy. First, Alex Pollock on the Revised Payments Service Directive. What it means is that in the same way that Telstra was forced to open its copper wire to other service providers, the banks will be forced to open their customer accounts to other providers of payments. So that is actually the best way to look at it, so that the account information itself and the bank itself will, in a sense, become the dumb pipe. That's an enormous development, isn't it? That is by far and away one of the largest things that's floating around the global banking market, certainly in the European and the UK banking market, and by extension, Australia. Way, way more important than the banking tax. So how, would it, how easy would it then become for an alternative payments provider, such as Tyro Payments perhaps? Or Google or Apple. To br- then break into um, the payment system, it then becomes possible, does it? Well, then it's just a matter of Google saying to you, do, are, you un- are you unhappy with the price your bank is charging you to hold your money, transfer your money, the time it takes to transfer from point A to point B? If so, click here, sign this form. And that will force the bank in the bank to hand over your customer details to us so that we can provide the same services from your bank account at a lower price. It's that simple and that uh, deadly. Um, and from there, you know, everything that happened, so to speak, to the you know, phone company with respect to all the other people that came in and started chipping away with lower cost structures, et cetera, is open to the Tyros and the Googles and the Apples to come and attack the banks, which, while they'll continue to hold the, as it were, vaults, <laughs> they won't be the only ones with the keys to the vaults, if you like, if you want to put it that way. So that other people will have a key to your account and with your permission, they will be able to transact business and charge you less for it, which, you know, opens up the banks to competition, which is what the whole thing's being driven by in Europe and the UK, and I suspect a little bit later in Australia, but very, very important. Just in general, things are changing so rapidly in so many ways, Alex. What's it like being an investor in this area now, in, in the area of disruption? Is it hard to keep up, do you find? No, 
No, the way disruption's breaking down is that it sort of breaks down into three or four or five core bits, and you, as long as you kind of hold hold the view on the three or four or five core bits and understand what and see how that plays, it's not that difficult to understand what's rolling next. What are the core bits? The banking system is a core bit. <laughs> so that's an important one. And you can see that a lot of people have had cracks at the banking system and fintech in the last 10 years. And in my view, the banking system has held far, far, held held its own over that period because post the GFC, there was enormous flight to safety, which essentially nipped the fintech revolution in the bud with respect to the banks. But 10 years later on, and you can see that the, the government's not as pleased with the banks as it once was. Scott Morrison's imposing a banking tax. So, you know, his view about the banks is that people don't like them. So politically, you know, there may be some expediency to be had, or it may be politically sound at least, to start to chip away some of the protections in the banks. So the, the point is that if you're thinking about the core bits of disruption, the financial system is a bit that didn't go last time. But because of things that have happened in banks, vampire squids, Goldman Sachs, the general view about people of banks in a general sense, you can see that kind of globally, the idea of opening up banking platforms to non-banks is could be viewed as attractive. So, you know, that's a bit of disruption. That's a chip in the game, so to speak. And it's not that hard to see it coming. And do you think that the most effective disruptors of banks will be the big companies like Google uh, and Apple, perhaps, um, or are there smaller plays as well? Uh, the best disruptors on this will be the big data banks like Google and Apple because they will understand and they will be able to to create the systems safely enough because cyber security, cyber trust is huge. This stuff can't be rinky-dink outfits. I mean, the few will get through. And there'll be some fast value creation stories that come out of nowhere, like Afterpay, for example, is a fabulous, a fabulous little um, play. And it's, but it's a niche, right? Uh, and there'll be a few of those little things that come out with the banking system itself, which will be just a clever idea, well executed, that will work. But in in the broader sense, people are not going to open up their banking details to a little startup. They're going to feel much more comfortable with with someone that's got, you know, a big uh, a big balance sheet behind it, like the good, like the big disruptors. Do you, do you want to briefly tell us what the other core bits are? No, <laughs> not really. That's your IP, is it? Correct. Very good. Well, that's fair enough. <laughs> Wilson used to be a senior executive at NAB, and now he's launching a neobank called Jinjar. So what's a neobank? Well, I'll let him tell you. Uh, a neobank is a, a brand new type of bank, uh, very popular overseas. It is an entirely digital bank from right at the back-end banking systems right through to everything that our customers experience. It's designed with customers, it's designed around their needs and, and with their input. Um, it's incredibly simple to use, 100% digital, no paperwork, intuitive, optimized, and you're able to make really good, healthy, excellent money decisions with a simple swipe of a finger through your phone. You've raised $2 million in a first round funding, so we're not talking about Jinjar as being a possible investment opportunity for our subscribers. 
But the reason we're talking to you, Eric, is just to get a sense of what this might mean for for legacy banks, such as the one you used to work for, National Australia Bank. And perhaps we can sort of get into that question by talking about what's going on overseas, in the US in particular, where apparently there are a lot of neobanks that have raised a fair bit of money. So I mean, what sort of inroads are these uh, organisations making? I think the, uh, the sort of epicentre of the neobank movement at the moment is, is London and in the United Kingdom, which has then spread out into the US and Europe. There are some key uh, neobanks in the UK, such as Tandem, Monzo, Starling, Atom Bank. There's about five or six of them now. All of them are in the official licensing process over there, and several of them have full banking licences. They're about three to four years into their life cycle, very popular, varying degrees of financial success. Uh, those a little bit further down their development cycles are making good money, they're profitable, and they're starting to scale, which, is, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, the uh, scale is a, is a critical ingredient for banking. And these banks are now starting to get some traction and starting to make scale. And I think some of the incumbents are starting to look over their shoulders. Well, indeed. But when we're talking about these things as being entirely digital banks, are they... Do they provide full services such as mortgages, transaction banking, deposits, the whole thing? Yes, some of them do. Some of them have chosen a current account-only approach in, over in London. But Zinger here in, in Australia, we look to be a full-service retail bank to do everything you'd expect from a retail bank, but to be able to do it through your phone and, and with great ease and simplicity. So current accounts, deposit accounts, mortgages, credit cards, debit cards, all the stuff that everyday Australians need every day. Why have you chosen to call it Jinja, which is spelled X-I-N-G-A? Is that because you want and expect the customers to be Chinese? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Jinja was no, a... Uh, was Chinese, the Chinese kind of word. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was done by our very creative marketing types. It's designed just to have a, a bit of energy and a bit of a fun name that, uh, that appeals to our, our market segment, sort of 25 to 45. And it's quite a fun name, and our initial sort of sign-up founders, even from our launch yesterday or the day before, have, uh, have signed to have a bit of fun with it, which is what we're about. We're about a bit of fun in a very serious business. So how does it differ from Ubank, which was launched by your old employer, NAB? Ubank is a, uh, isn't really a digital bank. It is a, uh, a website on the front of NAB. It's a good business, but it has all of the impediments that, that a large legacy bank has. It has old systems. It has to share the cost of the mothership and the mothership's way of doing business. Uh, a true neobank has none of those costs. It has no branch networks to, to support. It has no legacy IT systems to support, which means that not only is it able to offer incredibly good value, it's able to do some really clever things with it. It's technology that allows customers to operate in a really easy, light fashion that helps them make really good decisions very easily without paperwork, without a lot of fuss. You need to get a bit specific with me, if you wouldn't mind. I mean, when you say good value, what do you mean? Are we talking about skinnier margins on on interest or what? Um, I think all of the above. So we would be looking for to be able to give much, much more competitive mortgage rates. We'd be looking to offer wider spreads on our uh, on our deposit accounts. And, of course, low or no fee offerings through current accounts and things like that. So our base cost level of operating as a bank is, is substantially lower in many ways. Than, uh, than our legacy competitors. And how would a customer see a difference in terms of the way they interacted with, with you versus uh, NAB or one of the other big banks? We are an entirely mobile phone-based bank, so our customers would, uh, when they decide they want to become a customer of uh, Zinja, they would download our app, and within 100 seconds they can be set up with a current account 
um, but it's fully functioning that can have Apple Pay or uh, or the plan is for them to have Apple Pay or Android Pay um, or a number of other possible options. So you have a fully functioning uh, account within 100 seconds. No need to go and see anyone. No need to go into a branch. No need to wait until you've gone into a branch to be able to spend the money you've already put in. It's a very quick process. It uses digital technology to deliver a really wonderful, relaxed, seamless process for our customers. So you can't even do it on a computer. It's entirely mobile phone. So we will have backups on the computer. If people, uh, for some reason, can't get hold of their phone or need to access us through a website, they will, of course, have that. But the majority of the functionality and the ability to interact on a daily basis and to, to do all the things that we need to do quickly and simply can be done through their mobile. And have you got a license? Uh, not yet, no. That's in process. We've had uh, our first conversations with APRA and ASIC, and we are confident that we can, uh, we can gain license through them. And, indeed, the budget has actually uh, assisted that process. And who's behind Ginger, apart from yourself? On the team of the board, we have sort of a broad base of banking executives, experienced bankers in the roles you'd expect, so treasury and risk and all those things that require sort of deep skills, and that's about half my team. And the other half of my team I've been really careful to hire from outside banking. So we have a really experienced customer experience designer who will create an amazing experience for our customers, and we have customer service people who will who service and, and look after our clients in a way that is perhaps more aligned to hospitality than perhaps a traditional banking format. In terms of our investors, mostly, well, in fact, entirely experienced Australians who've done well in life and want to, want to see a change in the sector. And they have they've been brave and innovative and have decided to back us to make this change. And how much of a change do you think you're going to bring about? I mean, what sort of market share do you think these kind of neo-banks, the fully digital banks, will end up taking off the, uh, off the big banks? The best answer at this point is, is to look overseas again to the UK. Monzo, who we share a, a director with, so one of the co-founders of Monzo in the UK is, is on our board. Monzo had 50,000 people waiting to sign up for their prepaid debit launch product, and then they now have 170,000 customers having just acquired their, their banking license. So, these banks are acquiring customers at scale and reasonably rapidly, and, and we're hopeful that we can, we can mirror that here. The Battle for Fairfax is not the only takeover going on at the moment. There are lots of them. Tabcorp and Tattersalls, APN and Media, Downer and Spotless, Investor, and that's just the ones that have surfaced. So I thought I'd better ask Tom Elliott, chairman of Bueller Capital as well as Drive presenter on 3AW in Melbourne and a veteran of investing in takeovers, what's going on and how best to take advantage of it. I think it's because A, people feel relatively confident about the future. B, funding is cheap. You know, you've got still cheap interest rates, not as cheap as what they were, but still cheap. And you've got a reasonably healthy stock market. Remember, a lot of takeovers, people are paying for companies with their own shares. So if their own shares are healthy, they can afford to go out and buy more things. But it's often also because they're struggling to find growth in their own businesses. And so if they can't do that, they feel that going and buying another business is the way to go. Yeah, and CEOs, I guess, like growing their business because it means they end up getting paid more. Well, that's true. Most CEOs' remuneration, you know, they'd rather run a bigger company than a smaller one. And as a result, if it's a challenge or a lengthy challenge to try and grow organically or internally, and they say, you know what, I can buy my competitor. Uh, the ACCC is often the fly in the ointment there, though, as we're seeing with a number of deals at the moment. You always had a strategy of buying a company 
after the first bid uh, because usually the last bid is much higher and uh, it's a pretty safe investment strategy. Are you finding that because there's so many bids going on at the moment and it's fairly active that you're able to identify companies before they're taken over? We now have evolved our strategy to try and pick companies before they get bid for. Obviously, that's riskier because on average, there's maybe a 10% chance of an ASX 300 stock being taken over in a given year. That is, roughly 10% of the index gets bid for each year. With our methodology, we've lifted our our strike rate to about 30%. But that means, of course, that there's still 70% of the stocks we might hold don't get bid for. But yeah, we look at substantial shareholdings, business models which are undergoing consolidation, that sort of thing. So, for example... You know, ones we're looking at at the moment, I mean, Solly Lou has taken a, a substantial stake in Maya recently. Now, that could be because he wants to buy it, or it could be because in the event that someone else wants to buy it, he wants to protect his interest. But in either case, you often don't do too badly by following Solomon Lou. And that's notwithstanding the fact that retail is fairly challenging at the moment. A group, I, I believe, out of the Middle East called the Dar Group has taken a stake in Wally Parsons. And that's one we're having a look at as well. And also a group called Honey Capital has, has popped up as a substantial on the register of Santos. So these are the sorts of things that we would look at as a potential precursor to a bid down the track. So apart from someone coming in as a substantial shareholder in a company, take us through the other signals for a company to be a possible target. For example, a demerger makes you a target, and the best example of that is Fairfax. So Fairfax kicked off the um, takeover process by saying it was going to demerge its domain business, and when they said that they would do that, suddenly you've got two sort of private equity firms that are now saying, oh, well, we'll just buy the whole thing. So that's helped kick off a standard takeover for Fairfax. We also look at business models that require consolidation, and a good one there is, is gambling or gaming. I mean, the reason Tattersalls and Tadcorp want to merge is there's probably not room for all the players in Australia, particularly all the online gamblers. And so you've either got to get big or get out. And that's what I believe those two businesses are trying to do. Again, that's subject to ACCC approval. And then we look at things like just companies having substantial cash flows that they're spinning off because the best way to pay for a takeover, particularly one that where you have to buy, buy it with cash, is to buy a business that is in itself spinning off cash so that you can pay for the debt that you take on. They're the sorts of criteria we look at to identify potential uh, companies which are going to be subject to a bid. Are you still running a strategy where you buy after the first bid? Yeah, we still do that because one another one of our criteria is the existence of a previous bid. So let's say a company like Transurban is a good example, that it's had a number of bids made for it during its life. It's also a good cash flow generator. So that's one we, we have in our portfolio because of the previous bid. But also, you know, with Fairfax, for example, like even if you miss the first bids, you can say, well, there is a bid on the table. So it's a sort of a fusion of the two strategies. You can use a previous bid, and an existing bid on the table counts as a previous bid. Let's just talk about Fairfax for a minute. Obviously, we've got an auction now. Do you think that there's much left in it? Oh, well, every time they increase their price, just so you know, you know you've know, got $1.20 on the table from CPG and between $1.22 and $1.25 from Helmut and Friedman, who interestingly were involved back in 1992 when the Turing Consortium was having a look at Fairfax. Uh, I think there's a bit more in it, I do. The upside for the domain business in particular is quite substantial. You know, if you look at the success of realestate.com, they're not going to pay all of that upside to today's shareholders. They'll want to buy it, build the business, and then sell it again probably to the same people they're buying it from now in a few years' time. But I reckon, look, it's probably got max $1.40 on it, certainly more than $1.30. So, yeah, it's still a good risk-reward trade-off at the moment. You also work as a broadcaster on 3RW, which is also owned by Fairfax as part of Macquarie Radio. Do you think that you're going to end up with a new owner? 
Yes, I do. I've been to CAW in different capacities for 15 years. I think we've had three different owners in that time, so I expect the process to continue. Look, we're not a core asset. We're already a separate listed company with Macquarie Media, which has got 2GB in it as well. Fairfax owns 54.5% of that. We're not core to what's going on here. We've got nothing to do with the domain business. We don't drive you know, readers towards their newspaper sites. So uh, if there's a buyer out there, we'll be sold. There's no doubt about it. If uh, Macquarie Radio came on the market as a as an investment opportunity, would you recommend investing in it? Do you think it ends up being a, a possible takeover target itself? Again, oh, I think it does. It's a very illiquid stock because Fairfax owns fifty four and a half percent, so the free float is not high. But I think yes, they'll shop around that fifty four and a half percent once whoever wins the company in terms of bidding for the Fairfax parent company. Now, potential buyers have been touted like Nine has been spoken about. Bauer Media is a possibility. They bought all of Nine's stable of magazines several years ago, and I'm told that they operate talkback stations in Europe in other languages, so they might be interested in buying into it here, but there's nothing firm yet. I'm just a humble servant, of course. They don't talk to me about such things. Finally, property expert Ben Kingsley, founder of Empower Wealth and author of The Armchair Guide to Property Investing, has an interesting view of negative gearing, which I thought you should hear. If anyone is considering it as a strategy, I think it's crazy. I mean, if I use an example, if you and I went and bought the corner milk bar for $500,000, and we decided to run that milk bar at a loss for 10 years, hoping that someone would buy that milk bar for a million dollars in 10 years' time, now that's just a crazy investment. So, you know, if people are thinking about investing in property purely based on the grounds of negative gearing, I think they've got it all around the wrong way. One thing we need to understand about negative gearing is it's just a moment in time. It's not actually a strategy. It just means that initially when we go into the business of investing in property, we are effectively running our business from the ground up. So we might make a loss in the first few years, but ultimately over time, we want that property to be able to deliver us a passive income. And if we get capital growth on that journey as well, the overall investment becomes a good one. But it's crazy to think that people will want to invest in something that still has the risk of losing money to be able to offset some tax. doesn't make sense to me. I think that the thinking is that over time, over the first, say, five years or whatever, the capital gain on the property will do better than the loss. And the loss then, with get negative gearing, the loss gets obviously reduced by the tax deduction. So therefore, the taxpayers are subsidising you. And so therefore, the capital gain doesn't have to be quite as much in order to um, outweigh the losses. No, it doesn't. But I think if that's the primary reason why you're going to invest, come back to the fundamentals. What we're talking about here is we want to buy properties that do grow in value. But a lot of people, you know, are seduced by you know, these tax incentives and depreciation incentives to buy properties that aren't necessarily in the best locations and don't necessarily give us that level of capital growth. The current market that we're in with low interest rates is a rising tide that's lifting all ships. But, you know, once that tide goes out, we'll basically see who's been swimming naked, as Warren Buffett would say. With the cost of money being cheap, we've seen the value of properties lift up. I'm concerned about some areas of the market, certainly in greenfield areas where there is ample land supply and certainly in medium and high density apartments where, again, there is a lot of supply and potentially a lot more supply coming on. And I don't know whether those investments are going to deliver the returns that people are looking for. So I come back to the fundamentals and that is 
you should buy property based on supply and demand and owner-occupier appeal. Because if you get a property that has limited in supply and high in demand, then ultimately you're going to get an asset that's going to perform better. And as that asset grows in value, well, guess what? You can raise your rents because not only do owner-occupiers want to live in certain locations, but so do renters. And those renters are going to pay to obviously live in those locations because of the lifestyle drivers attached to that. So again, I think if anyone's trying to think that negative gearing is the reason why they get into property, you know, I think, you know, once we see the market cool off and we see, you know, the numbers on the pages and the amount of interest that we're paying, and if there is a stagnant period of capital growth, well, those people are going to say, well, look, the opportunity cost of my investment is now... I'm in question if, if the value of those assets don't grow in the next five years. So how long do you think this moment in time that you talk of for negative gearing should last? The really, really good investments, these properties can turn from negatively geared to positively geared in as many as sort of three to five years. Now, the negative gearing is a product of how much you borrow. So if you're borrowing, say, 106%, meaning you're using equity in an existing property, then it's going to take a little bit longer. But if you're uh, only borrowing at, say, an 80% loan-to-value ratio, then, yeah, it could be three to five years. In the modelling that we do for a lot of our clients, we, we're quite conservative, and we would think it's more like seven to nine years, and that's without depreciation. Um, so, you know, and again, with obviously lower interest rates, it could be a little bit earlier because obviously the cost of the interest is lower. How do you move into positive gearing, particularly if it's an interest-only loan, which a lot of people are taking out? Is it just through rent increases? Correct. Yeah, it is. So to give you an example, um, I bought a property in Flemington in 2007 for $395,000. That property is now in the vicinity of sort of eight hundred and fifty dollars to $900,000. Now, I've rented that property out for when I first bought it. And obviously, I took a loan against that property at four twenty five with the costs associated with that. Now, the property is giving me around $550 a week rent. That's positively geared property. So, and I haven't done anything. I've still got the interest against that property. So that's an example of, you know, where the property has done the heavy lifting because you've picked the right type of property and it's performed obviously very, very well. It's those types of examples where if you just um, are servicing the interest only component, um, these properties can turn positively geared over time. And, and that's the passive income. I mean, property is a long-term investment. Now, we don't want to be speculating in property in the next five years. It's just crazy to think that. I've always said you've got to be in it for the long term and you've got to be investing for sort of 10, 15, 20 years to get the true benefit of property investment. Do you think that it's okay to retire with a positively geared investment debt? Uh, yes, I do, so long as the properties are performing. If they're still continuing to grow in value, why would you sell the goose that's laying the golden egg as long as the debt is being serviced? So in some of the modelling strategies that we build, we may still have a residual debt on that property of 400, 500 across the portfolio, uh, but ultimately it's still delivering that passive income and servicing that debt as well. That is definitely part of the type of strategy you may develop over a you know, 20, 30, 40-year plan for a particular client. And so it, it will be case by case. In some cases, there may still be too much debt um, and we would then advocate for a transition to retirement that may include the strategic sell-down and the timing sell-down of, of the portfolio that you may build over time. Do you think it's a good strategy to 
start to build a negatively geared property portfolio, say 10 years before retirement, with the aim and the plan to move into positive gearing at retirement? Yeah, so 10 years is, is a, a shallow window. I mean, obviously, we'd love to see people doing more earlier if they can. But if let's say if we do have that 10-year period, what would potentially change in the advice that we would give to clients is we may not necessarily be focused on those really strong capital growth properties. We may be focused on a balanced property where we've got a good balance of potential growth as well as really high yield. Or in some cases, depending on how quickly they are on a retire, we might actually chase yielding properties, which we're saying are, are based on the cost and the assessment of that property might actually be positively geared from day one. It's really about a case-by-case -case tailored solution for each client that we see. And, and of course, their income is going to tell that story to us as well, because at the end of the day, it's the surplus that we want to invest. So if they've got really high incomes, then we may be a little bit more focused on capital growth assets. If they've got, you know, sort of a smaller margin, then we might go balanced or try for a cash flow positive property from, from day one. And yes, yesterday was the 76th birthday of this year's Nobel Prize winner for literature, Robert Zimmerman, a.k.a. Bob Dylan, of course. And may he stay forever young. May God bless and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. May you build a ladder to the stars and climb on every rung and may you stay. Thanks to our constant team as well as ISM Studios for the music and thank you for listening. I'll see you in your inbox on Saturday morning.